Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. At least once a day, I'm asking 10 questions and I'm trying to find the people who can give me the answers on what's going to happen with the consumer effectively, because that will change demand. Despite the unprecedented pace of interest rate increases and the fear of a hard economic landing, the consumer and the stock market remain surprisingly strong. Commercial real estate, on the other hand, is a real question mark. And for some, it's an area that's still ripe with opportunity. There's about one and a half trillion coming due by the end of 2024. So what we have currently is this giant wall of maturities that is coming due. And therein lies what I would describe as one of the most interesting opportunities for any commercial real estate credit manager that I've seen in my career. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. As the economy shifts and interest rates rise, there's an extraordinary opportunity right now for lenders who pay attention and are willing to lean in. Today, we get to sit down with Warren DeHaan, founder, managing partner, and CEO at Acor Capital. Acor is one of the largest credit managers focused on commercial real estate lending with approximately 20 billion of assets under management. Acor originates, acquires, and manages first mortgages, mezzanine debt, and preferred equity throughout the US. They are ranked in the top 20 of the real estate debt 50, according to Private Equity Real Estate, the leading industry trade publication for real estate fund and investment managers. Since its inception in 2015, Acor has closed almost 500 transactions worth roughly $40 billion. Prior to Acor, Warren held C-suite leadership positions in the commercial real estate, finance industry, and capital markets, including Starwood Property Trust, Countrywide Commercial Real Estate Finance, and Coastal Capital Partners. For the past six years, the Commercial Observer has ranked Warren in the top 15 of their annual listing of the 50 most important figures of commercial real estate finance. Let's enter the arena with Warren DeHaan. The hospitality industry was always attractive to me for various reasons. You know, I, I think whether you're in the hotel business or you're in the finance business like us, there's always an aspect of customer service. And, you know, money is money, money is green, and you need to differentiate yourself. And certainly one of the approaches that I've always taken to anything I've done is one that is led by hospitality. And in the context of ACOR or in the context of finance, we like to have a white glove service approach to our clients because good clients and repeat clients are very valuable in any business you have. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I love talking to anyone who's kind of started something from nothing. What did you see in 2015 that kind of nudged you and your partners to start Acor? Well, it wasn't so much about the timing of 2015. It was really about the, where we were in the commercial real estate finance markets. And coming out of 2008, the great financial crisis, there were a couple of real regulatory changes that took place. At the time, the regulators stepped in and said to the banking system, hey, folks, you're banks, you're fiduciaries, you have depositors, you are taking all this risk that shouldn't really be taken by banking institutions. So we need to change the way in which or the framework within which you operate, i.e. what you should or shouldn't be investing in. Similarly, through that regulatory framework, they changed the amount of leverage the banks could take and how their capital charges were going to be recalibrated. And so fundamentally, the goal of all that regulation was to build a more stable banking system. And I think it was very successful, to be honest, notwithstanding some of the issues we have in the regional banking system today. What that really resulted then in was the opportunity for the non-bank lending sector to grow. So this is, was basically the emergence of companies like Starwood Property Trust, Blackstone's Mortgage REIT, KKR's Mortgage REIT, and so on, which was fundamentally the, the leaders of those businesses at the time said, look, there is a need for liquidity for transitional assets potentially those with a little bit more risk than what the banks were willing to take. And there was not really a natural supply of capital to fill that gap. So these folks launched these mortgage REITs, public mortgage REITs, and very successfully have built out those businesses over subsequent years. And in our case, we were the senior management team that worked alongside some folks from Starwood and Barry Sternlicht to build that from you know, at the time, $760 million market cap to about $5.5 billion over the four years we, we were there. So there was a natural sort of career inflection point for us at that time. And the demand for non-bank capital was continuing to grow. So we as partners said, we've learned a lot. We've, we've learned from the good things we've done and we've learned from our mistakes. And now it was a good time for us to step in and to go and build a scalable non-bank lending business. And that really gave birth to Acor. Well, you're certainly going after a huge market. Maybe give our listeners a sense of how large the commercial real estate debt market is, kind of the magnitude of loans coming due over the next few years. It's pretty staggering. Most people, I don't think, are dialed in to really how massive the market is. So borders of magnitude, there's about four and a half trillion dollars of commercial real estate loans that are outstanding. And this is in the United States, and this is across all product types, multifamily, industrial, retail, hotels, self-storage, et cetera, et cetera. And these loans are generally, a lot of these loans are shorter duration loans with maturities, let's say plus or minus five years from inception. There's about two and a half trillion dollars of those loans that are coming due in the next four and a half to five years. There's um, about one and a half trillion coming due by the end of 2024. So what we have currently is this giant wall of maturities that is coming due. 
And therein lies what I would describe as one of the most interesting opportunities for any commercial real estate credit manager that I've seen in my career. And obviously those loans need to be refinanced. As you said, the banks are retrenching and there's this amazing uh, supply demand equation set up. And I've heard you, Warren, say that kind of ACOR is built for this moment in time. How do you organize the business? How do you think about the business and scaling it and making sure that you deliver that white glove service as you described earlier? Yeah, so notwithstanding what we read about and we see every day as it relates to a potential soft landing, medium landing, hard landing, you know, we take all of that into account and we're clearly focused on the health of the consumer. But really in the interim, it's, it's a lot to do with rates, high rates, lack of availability of well-priced or appropriately priced debt capital that is driving a real issue here. We're also in a moment in time where notwithstanding all that positive regulation that took place in 2008, the regional banking system came unglued. And the importance of what's going on there is that about 70 to 80% of all commercial real estate loans that are within banks are coming out of the regional banking system. But today those banks are facing multiple problems. One is the Fed's reaction to the regional, the run on the banks was to open the Fed window. What that really means is that the Federal Reserve will open up liquidity where those banks can pledge assets to the Federal Reserve and in return get cash. Cash is in the form of a loan, but the difference between 2008 and today is back then they could borrow money at effectively 0% interest and their assets were yielding, just pick a number, 4%, which meant that the banks could mend their balance sheets by virtue of having a positive spread and their income fundamentally helped those banks strengthen their balance sheet. Borrow cheap, assets yield more, and you make a real positive return on equity. Today, we're faced with a more complex equation where because the short-term rates are in the mid fives, that is the Fed funds rate, that's the overnight borrowing rate for the banks, and their assets are not yielding more than that. So effectively, their borrowing cost is higher than what their assets are yielding, resulting in a decline in their return on equity. The second issue that they have is their balance sheets. What's been a consequence of this rapid increase in the rates from the Federal Reserve, the assets, which were fundamentally good loans that the banks were making, now look like less good loans. So, and why is that? I mean, firstly, in any asset class that has a sort of a fixed income related cash flow stream like real estate, we, we are interest rate sensitive. Secondly, and very importantly is, once these rate caps expire and have expired, the debt service burden for the borrowers has more than doubled, meaning that those loans on the bank's balance sheets now go from tier one capital, where the banks have to hold very little capital against them, to possibly tier three or four, meaning that the banks now used to need to use scarce cash that they have on their balance sheets to hold more of that against the loans. The third vector here is a more highly scrutinized regulatory framework on what the banks can and can't do. So ultimately what this means is that the regional banking system, which has been in, in large part the lifeblood of commercial real estate, is stuck 
for at least the short, maybe the mid term, meaning that we're seeing this retrenchment and secular change resulting in way less debt liquidity to satisfy this two and a half trillion dollars of debt coming due. So therein lies this really interesting opportunity, which is Acor as a finance company of scale, looking forward that just the supply and demand imbalance is resulting in far more opportunities that are coming to us at interest rates that are more than two times higher than where they were a year or 18 months ago. And borrowers don't really have much in the way of options. So what we need to look at, Tom, is really how much flexibility the regulators give the banks as their loans are coming due. But there is another problem that is out of our hands and out of everyone's hands and uncontrollable is how does the real estate industry support paying 10% for a loan when it used to be three, three and a half percent. So we need some real changes to take place in the industry, really starting with the Federal Reserve. Another part of this whole equation that's very important, you have the banks, you have insurance companies that are still lending, you have the mortgage REITs that by and large are trading at inside of book value, and then you have the CMBS and CLO marketplaces. This is that's really largely driven on the buy side by bo huge bond buyers. But in an environment where there is nervousness about the feds and there isn't really rate stability, the bond buyers are less likely to come into the market in scale because if rates go up, their bond, the bond values are going to drop the next day and they're not going to get paid their bonuses fundamentally. So we need rate stability. So your question really was, how are we looking at this? Well, I feel kind of schizophrenic because <laughs> on the one hand, we have a $20 billion portfolio that we made over the last five years. And some of those assets are feeling, and those borrowers are feeling these pressures. We're doing whatever we can to work with them in the confines of being a good fiduciary for our capital and also white glove service to help these borrowers get to the other side. So bad things are happening to good people as a result of this rapid acceleration of rates. So we have that going on. Fortunately, we have 40 people in asset management. All they do every day is manage the portfolio. And then I have 31 originators that are working with those 40 asset managers to make sure that we are generating the best outcomes ultimately for our investors, but also being as compliant as we can and helpful as we can with our borrowing community. So that's the defense playbook. The offense playbook is clearly this lack of debt liquidity out there, this huge wall of refinancing, and that's generating not only the opportunity to do our standard 65% loan-to-value loans on transitional assets with top quartile borrowers and markets and assets, that is also driving an opportunity for more high yield more opportunistic credit buckets, and both of those is the world in which Acor runs and is really, when I talk about the prospective opportunity, is for us to expand those, in that invest, those investments significantly over the next couple of years. Warren, you mentioned the, the regulatory part. There's certainly some politicians, whenever there's a bank failure, they want to come in and just like create a ton of more regulations. Do you think they understand what's going on and whatever they do, you know, how do you think it's going to affect all these loans that are coming due? 
<laughs> uh, it's such a great question, right? We could almost, I wish we had a beer because we could really yeah. get deep into this one. But, uh, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of the fair. There's been a lot of criticism of everywhere. You know, lots of arrows being shot around. But fundamentally, the people that are dealing with these issues are not stupid, right? These are very well-trained folks. But they do look at things through a certain lens. And their lens doesn't always incorporate what I, my little soliloquy that I went through and the complexity that's being created out of it. Nor would they necessarily prioritize the issues that are identified in the same way I or you would prioritize those issues. So the Fed really has been very clear on their objective of reducing inflation back down to two to, two to three percent. And they do deserve credit for being staying and sticking to that like glue. Yeah. You know, the complexity in and around the Fed and their decisions is the, the idea of the lag, right? So Fed ratchets rates, they meet every quarter, they will increase rates or hold rates or whatever based on in the moment data. So if you look at CPI as an example, what we are seeing through the real estate community eyes is that about a third of CPI or inflation is made up of uh, housing. Shelter is the category. And as a result of these higher rates, uh, as a result of many factors, what we are seeing across the multifamily industry, we're seeing a deceleration and in fact a decline in rental rates in a number of markets. Now that isn't reflected today. That's going to be reflected next month, next month, next month. And when the Fed makes some of these decisions, one criticism I would have is it's not necessarily reflective of the direction we're heading, meaning that the actions that they took last quarter, we're not going to feel for a while. And we really want to feel those implications before we see the Fed raising rates again in reaction, because we talked about how destructive interest rates are on interest rate sensitive assets like commercial real estate. And we, you know, we'll sit back and look at it and say, well, why did you do that again? You're not taking into account the lag. And we feel, at least I feel like some of those actions the Fed has taken has been too reactionary, building a bridge too far instead of trying to get it right. And in so doing, creating more, uh, you know, shrapnel, if you will, in the commercial real estate industry. There's no crystal ball in this business and Warren has a really complicated job. His career and success is all about experience, so I wanted to know how he approaches underwriting the overall risk he sees today in the marketplace. It's not easy today, and it's not easy because I view the world in a couple of different categories. I try and understand liquidity as a standalone concept, and we've talked a lot about liquidity and implications of liquidity. The other thing that we've talked less about is implications on credit, right? So credit is going to be impacted by really two factors. One is a change in demand. And secondly is the change in longer term interest rates that's going to have an impact on cap rates, i.e., you know, the multiple of cash flow at which people will buy this. When we talk about credit, to me, it is of equal weight in terms of my concern as liquidity. And we're sort of sitting here and waiting and looking at this 
potential credit framework going forward, i.e., are we going into recession, soft landing, hard landing, where are we? And, and heretofore, my thinking has been that we're going to have a harder landing than a softer landing. The one variable that continues to surprise me, which would possibly lead to a soft landing, is that the consumer happens to be stronger than what I had anticipated, certainly, and many other people would have anticipated. And I can guarantee you, at least once a day, I am, I'm asking 10 questions and I'm trying to find the people who can give me the answers on what's going to happen with the consumer effectively, because that will change demand. So what, one thing we know is longer term rates are going to stay higher for longer. And that is also evidenced over the last four weeks in the forward 10 year yield curve, right? Where it feels like, oh, it feels like it was more like a soft landing than a hard landing. And secondly, is the stock market continues to rise as if there's nothing wrong and everything's great. It's quite remarkable to it's me. It's amazing. Yeah. And as I say, the stock market is not the economy, so I try and ignore it. But when you put the bond market next to it, those two are starting to think similarly, which is it seems like it's most likely going to be a softer landing. The consumer is healthier than we thought. However, rates are going to stay higher longer, and it's going to be more difficult for the Fed to drop rates because if we are in fact stronger in the economy and you drop rates, now you're throwing fuel on that inflation fire and that's just gonna pump inflation back up again. So for me, when I think about it, we talked about liquidity, the credit side of this is part good and part not so good. The part good is if the consumer can stay, remain strong and wage growth and employment remains high, then demand is gonna be there which would continue to increase net operating income which is a good thing for us. The bad thing is, is it's gonna be difficult to see rates come down anytime soon, meaning that net-net, you're still gonna see a decline or some destruction in value. So we've been very conservative, Tom, in terms of our approach this year, effectively. Our production is down significantly year over year. The entire market is down significantly year over year. I think the latest data I have would suggest that Commercial real estate lending is down about 65 or 70% year over year. And secondly is investment sales. So this is the sale of properties is down in the 60s as well. For someone who kind of follows the markets, you'd think that all of commercial real estate is kind of the same, but it's not. Where are the areas where there are opportunity, given the complexity, all this uncertainty, I think that there's a few things going on that would surprise us at the fundamental level. The hospitality industry within the right sectors, so I would define those as leisure-oriented hospitality, hotels that have inelastic demand characteristics, things like that, properties like that, have completely outperformed certainly my expectations and many others' expectations, has also outperformed the peak numbers in 2019. So that's been a pleasure to watch. And we talked about the health of the consumer. That sector, in my mind, will continue to outperform most people's expectations. Multifamily is, continues to be a darling of the industry. Firstly, with high interest rates, people can't afford houses, so they're gonna rent. Secondly, you have wage rate that continues to grow. Thirdly is you have built-in liquidity in multifamily in the form of the government agencies, Freddie and Fannie, that is completely unique, where they will provide liquidity, debt liquidity in the sector at a cost that's lower than any other asset types. 
We are short housing in the United States, 7 million units. So directionally, multi feels good. Industrial logistics, while it's slowed a little bit, continues to remain really strong. Self-storage, we're doing a lot of self-storage. We love self-storage, particularly when it's in markets that have high growth of multifamily. It's continued to perform you know, really, really well. In the office sector, which is really the area of most concern in everyone's portfolio, there is the tale of two, two sort of cities, if you will. There are those that are trophies that continue to perform extremely well. These are the class A buildings in markets where there is demand. And then you have the, those that are basically going to become functionally obsolete on the bottom quartile, where there's a lot of thinking about functional obsolescence. Those words are difficult words to even have come out of your mouth, yeah. right? Say, you know, these were buildings that had $75 foot rents. You know, now they're down to 40 bucks a foot and they, they're non-economic. They don't make any economic sense anymore and people don't even want to go there. There's a big question mark around them. There is quite a lot of energy being put into the conversion of office buildings to multifamily. But while I like the business plan, there are a few problems. One is many of the buildings don't lay out properly. They don't lay out for multifamily. Two is there are tenants in the building. You gotta wait for those tenants <laughs> to get out before you convert them. Long grind. And three is the sellers are not willing to sell them at a price that someone needs to buy them for. So I think what we will see, Tom, is some public-private partnerships, which I think will be healthy for everybody. Yeah, it's fascinating, but it's going to take a long time to play out. Another thing I wanted to ask you, Warren, is the loans themselves. You know, five years ago, it seemed like capital was just being thrown at all kinds of developments. The loans now, though, I would imagine you can attach some pretty strong covenants to those to ensure appropriate returns. How do you think about that issue? So if we go back to 2007, 2008, the average loan inquiry was from big sponsors, everyone looking for 80% financing. And so it was a lot of financial engineering that took place in order for investors to make their returns. And we know how badly that ended for everybody in that equation. Fast forward to post 2008, 9, 10, I have to give credit to not only the borrowers as a broad comment, but also to the lenders, where there's been a much higher degree of discipline implemented over the last, you know, the subsequent years. Our average loan to cost is in the 65 to 70% of purchase price range, meaning that there's lots of equity cushion in there, the incentives are properly aligned. And in our business, because Almost everything we do is transitional in nature. There's a lot of hope. There's a lot of energy. There's a new business plan that the basic credit and underwriting was highly disciplined over the last you know, almost 10 years now. And we very, very rarely lost a loan over some one of our competitors doing something we would say is way too aggressive. Maybe it was too aggressive at the margin here or there in its competitive world. But the discipline was there from both the borrowers and the lenders. So a much different framework than 2008. So today though, as a rule of thumb, you could probably say every lender that looks like us has dropped leverage five to 10 percentage points on cost. So instead of 65, we're at 60, or instead of 70, we're at 60% of cost. 
the covenants that we want are going to be tighter covenants all around. And so in markets like this, we're certainly able to drive the terms, the economic terms that are more favorable to a lender than we've seen this in a very long period of time. And that's part of the reason, besides lack of debt liquidity, that I really like where we are today. Why is it better for your business to be focused just on credit? A couple of reasons. One is, I do believe that the credit business, the finance business, requires a certain discipline and a certain approach to things. When you're in debt, a good day is you get paid back your money and your interest. Yeah. That's my best day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we're playing for different things. And if you're a borrower, you can lean in a little bit more based on intuition. You can lean in a little bit more based on hope in some sense, or optimism is a better word. And, you know, a lot of borrowers have done very well living in that universe. We don't exist in that universe. We exist in a universe of, you know, that's fundamentally uh, really math-based and statistically based, you know, so we can be kind of boring, in fact. Imagine taking us to a cocktail party. It'd be t terrible. I'd probably anybody. like it in a twisted way, but um, <laughs> no, I know what you mean. It must take like so much discipline. I'm sure you see all these equity opportunities that are probably unbelievable. We also have an advantage. It, it, by, by virtue of Acor not having an equity fund, we don't compete with our borrowers. So, you know, a number of our competitors have equity funds, they have debt funds, there's a sharing of information. We probably do about a billion dollars at least of deals a year where borrowers will call us directly and say, look, we're buying this portfolio of assets, we need a $200 million loan, and we both know where the market is, plus or minus. Let's just negotiate because I don't want to send this out to a number of the other lenders that also have equity funds because this is an off-market deal and I don't want them having my information. I also don't want them having my business plan because lender XYZ owns the building down the road and they're gonna see what I'm doing and it's gonna put me at a competitive disadvantage. So that's worked in our favor. So the way I position Acor from a branding perspective is we're the borrower's finance partner. We provide great capital at a market-based price and we provide you with white glove service in asset management with our huge asset management team. And our incentives are never to own your real estate or compete with you. Our incentive is to get our money back, our principal and interest, and that's what we play for. And our job here is to help support you as the borrower in executing on your business plan. So being pure play has put us in a very advantageous position with a lot of our borrowers. I also believe that we can make equity-like returns with taking much less risk. So there's not a huge incentive, other than I'd love to say I'm the owner of certain buildings, it's good for my ego, it makes me feel good, <laughs> but I don't need to do that to generate very attractive returns for my investors. Yeah, where do you see the business in, in five years as all this plays out? So the objective really is that I want Acor to be the distinguished non-bank lender in the US, and then ultimately our opportunity would be globally, depending on our investor base. And because we're not a debt fund, we are a finance company. You know, the, the differentiation there is we're 21 billion under management versus a number of our competitors with debt funds are a lot smaller. Along with scale comes a lot of advantages. Uh, it's a kind of a cliche, but it's true. 
The second thing I would say is that there are a number of our competitors that are going to struggle through the cycle because the way in which they have financed themselves is complex, is the best way to describe it, and in some cases uh, is not diversified or distributed across a lot of counterparties. And similarly, when we look at our portfolio of loans we've made, it's extremely diversified. We do the same thing with our leverage on our funds, where we make sure that we're not betting on one way to finance ourselves. We also man manage a very large amount of insurance company capital, and the insurance companies are highly attracted to our product for many reasons. And so in five years time, the vision would be to double, triple, quadruple the size of the company on assets under management. And I'm only saying that because I believe that this lack of liquidity, the secular changes in the market, the team we have in place and our commitment to commercial real estate credit and the branding should help us get there. And so as we move through the, these phases, we will continue to see a big influx of capital that was going into private equity and other more higher risk alternatives shifting into commercial real estate credit products. And then the third burgeoning sector really is the retail market. And, you know, clearly when we look at other alternative managers, that space has grown tremendously. So I hope that we are on the tip of the spear and we continue to drive, you know, great uh, risk adjusted returns to our investors. And at the same time that we're still capable and able to provide this white glove service to the borrowing community. If that all comes together, I think we'll achieve our objective of being, you know, the distinguished non-bank lender in the U.S. Acor Capital's track record shows they're incredibly effective in a highly complex macro environment. This is a very experienced team, an impressive group with a ton of opportunity in front of them. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon to be public companies. Thanks for listening. I have to thank Warren DeHaan for joining me today. Warren is a wealth of knowledge and has a great knack for dissecting and explaining how this is all playing out today. I clearly need to have him on at least once a year because we can all benefit from his insights. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.